how do we cultivate compassionate eyes to see, empathetic ears to hear, and tender hearts to respond to the brokenness that abounds. And we do that through leading these conversations from a biblically-based place. Like, this doesn't have to be something that we conjure up and just have to create theories around, or we have to just point historically to things. We can turn to the pages of scripture and over and over and over again, they're highlighting this reality as something that the people of God must be able to discern and respond to. Welcome to season three of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, hello once again to all of our incredible Shades of Hope podcast listeners. You know, you guys have been so encouraging in the feedback that we are receiving around the country as we continue this, what I call a sacred conversation around racial justice. And we are in the midst in season two of speaking with people that are much more advanced Uh, in my opinion, Pastor Jeff, than you and I are in this incredible subject matter that we are trying to engage the church. Pastor Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Pastor Moritz. Good to be with you again. I always enjoy these conversations. And you're right, we are finding the escalating expertise of our guests has been fabulous. Absolutely. And today, we have a young man out of the Atlanta area, who is a pastor of pastors as it relates to how to deal with this subject matter that we think the church has been challenged with around white supremacy, white polarization, and how to handle those movements in the midst of the church. Mm -hmm. And so would you introduce to our audience on this incredible day, the young man that is going to be with us? Oh, it's my pleasure. We have been working schedules and communications and friends of friends in order to to make this happen. And so I'm very excited. I follow Reverend Gilliard on Twitter. And as soon as his new book came out, I was very quick to get it. But let me just tell you all a little bit about our guest. The Reverend Dominique Dubois Gilliard is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He is the author of Rethinking Incarceration and with the subtitle Advocating for Justice That Restores, which incidentally won the 2018 InterVarsity Press Book of the Year Award. Reverend Gilliard also serves on the board of directors for our friends at the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. And this new book that came, it's not as new as it was 2021, but has gotten rave reviews. And so we're just privileged to welcome him today to the Shades of Hope podcast to discuss the book. Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, welcome to the show. Hey, excited to be on with you all. 
yeah, why don't you just give us a little bit of a bio, yeah. where you're at, what you're doing specifically, the Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation Director. I love that title. Just give us a little bit about that work you're doing, maybe some family bio as well. Yeah, so I am originally from the metro Atlanta area, which I just relocated to because of pandemic shifts and decentralizing of offices. So many of us are kind of going through. I was in the Chicagoland region, in the city of Chicago, actually, before this for about five years, but cumulatively have spent about 11 years in Chicago and also spent five and a half years out in Oakland, California, pastoring out on the West Coast. Okay. So, yeah, I jokingly tell people that uh, God took the best virtues of the call upon my parents' life and combined it into a call upon my life. My mother is what would be equivalent in other denominational structures to the bishop of the southeastern region of the country for the Evangelical Covenant Church. My father has a deep heart and passion for racial justice and history and is an author in his own right. And so I'm kind of merged the two callings on those things. And now my job, the easiest way to describe it is that I am a pastor, two pastors for our roughly 850 congregations throughout North America, helping them make connections between discipleship, scripture, and our call to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> hey, I got a question. That middle name, Du Bois, was that intentional mm-hmm. on the part of your parents? Because we know the great W. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. I am named after Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh-huh. And all of my siblings, my parents named all of our middle names after significant Black people who have helped change the world. And so my little awesome. sister is named after the poet laureate Nikki Giovanni. Yes. And my older brother is named after Toussaint Louverture, who helped to lead the Haitian rebellion uh, in the midst of slavery. So, Wow. Fantastic. So you've got the pastor hat that you wear. You've got the coach mentor hat that you wear. You have the theologian hat that you wear. Is there an activist hat that gets worn at all? Are all of these things at work? For sure, activist hat and then also professor hat. I also oh, serve as geez. adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary mm-hmm. um, and have taught at a couple other institutions as well. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if this learning doesn't transfer into tangible action on the streets, in our communities, on the ground, it's all for not. And so for sure, there's definitely an activist element to the call and it comes out in subversive witness, but it was even more explicitly on display in the first book that was really about what is the church's role in actually helping in an oppressive system of mass incarceration. For those of us who aren't as familiar with Evangelical Covenant Church, could you just give us a little bit of history, maybe high level, and then maybe even some of the demographic makeup of the congregation? You said about 800 congregations across the country? Uh, 850, yeah. Okay. So yeah, the Evangelical Covenant Church is a Swedish origin denomination and ultimately migrated over here initially was offering services for Swedish immigrants. We called ourselves Mission Friends. We wanted to live on mission, intentionally in friendship relationships with those who were coming over and trying to navigate 
life in a new world, a new land. And then we have evolved, our president likes to say, we've gone from being the denomination with multi-ethnic ministries to a multi-ethnic denomination. And so one of our distinctives really is the fact that we are the first European origin denomination to cross the 20 percentile marker for total ethnic participation in our denominational fellowship. And we're hedging at this point right on the 30 percentile marker. And so in that big piece of our story is how we really evolved from a monocultural to a truly multi-ethnic fellowship of believers. How long did that process take? And I mean, there had to be intention to that, right? Very intentional. How did that all, I mean, this is fascinating. Yeah. So... I mean, it's putting me on the spot. Sorry. Um, yeah. It's, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be historically accurate. <laughs> it's been over a century of yep. work, and our flagship institution is North Park University okay. and yep. Theological Seminary. So that is our one and only you know, higher educational producer. And then we actually have a high school, Minnehaha, in Minneapolis. But yes, this work, I'd say really there was a real shift that started to happen in the 60s when we had to ask questions like everybody else was around white flight and our participation. Were we going to flee to the suburbs? Were we going to remain rooted in our urban communities and evolve our ministerial offerings? There was varying degree of how we answered that denominationally, but I think the churches that decided to stay really started to root us into a different kind of conversation and help us to realize what it meant to faithfully love our neighbors, and to understand the kind of principles that Jeremiah is trying to flesh out for us when he gives us his vision about seeking the peace and the prosperity where God has rooted us. And so I think that starts to happen. We start to include ethnic-specific congregations beyond Swedish, so Asian-American, African-American, Latin communities start to be involved in the fellowship. And then we really make a very intentional and strategic choice to really prioritize church planting and planting multi-ethnic and ethnic-specific churches. And then we ultimately, in mid to late 90s, we start to ask very specific pointed questions about how do we measure our success as a denomination to make sure that the language that we use isn't just lofty, but not rooted in reality, but there's some kind of accountability for the fact that we say that we want to become this truly multi-ethnic fellowship. So we create something called the six-fold test for multi-ethnic ministries that really becomes this checks and balances for us around how are we actually living into and embodying the things that we're proclaiming about our desires. And that's really been a kind of North Star for us as we have continued to sojourn on this path. And then also kind of reinforcing that and putting our money where our mouths are, creating roles like the ones that I occupy and I'm not a solo person. We have a whole entire department that really helps us to understand the nuances and complexities of what it means to faithfully love our neighbors domestically and to get into some of this tricky terrain, racial righteousness. Gosh, I feel like we just got bonus material that we were not expecting, (laughs) but now I need to do a deep dive into the Evangelical Covenant Church because you said like everyone was doing in the 60s. Some people were not doing it in the 60s. Some people were burying their head in the sand and pretending like there wasn't a problem, but that you have not only paid attention to it, but then put actionable accountability 
behind the vision that you have. I mean, I just think that's a powerful statement of what can happen if we do take seriously what it means for us to reckon with race. So thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but I felt like, man, that's really good bonus material for those of us who aren't familiar with the denomination. But you wrote a book and that's what we really want to talk about. And the book's fantastic. I read it quickly and it was very accessible, but the title itself kind of tips your hand right at the beginning. So I just want you to talk a little bit about that. It's called Subversive Witness. And the subtitle is Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. And so I'm just interested in what you were getting at, just not only with the title, but then obviously as the big idea of the book, what were you trying to accomplish with this? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of conversations out there around privilege, but there are very few that are really, truly biblically-based conversations. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of the church has been skeptical about language around privilege. And the other reason is I think a lot of people assume that conversations about privilege have to be rooted in condemnation. And it's about you basically telling me how bad I should feel about something. That's right. And those conversations are not invitational. They are not rooted in a missional framework that helps us to understand the faithful possibilities of bearing witness to who and whose we are that privilege actually affords us. And so I wanted to shift the conversation and really be explicit about privilege being something that we have to wrestle and reckon with if we're going to bear a faithful witness in a fallen world that has Mm -hmm. systems and structures that assigns value to bodies and Mm -hmm. assigns different value to different bodies on a sliding scale that's not congruent with the biblical truth that we see in the first pages of scripture in Genesis that tells us that all people are equitably made in the image of God. We live in a world that says that certain people are more reflective of the divine image than others and therefore warrant more dignity, respect, and protection than others do. That's antithetical to everything that we should believe as Christians. And when we're not explicit about the fact that those two things are incongruent, then I think we can get off track. And so I wanted to invite us to a more honest conversation about the realities of living in a fallen world and what does it mean for us to live distinctively again because of who and whose we are as children of God. Yep. So the whole definition of, I mean, when people hear the terminology of white privilege, you serving in a predominantly white denomination, what are the responses? I mean, I'm sure you get a a series of responses and encounters when you even stand to talk to a white audience about privilege. Well, one of the first things I wanted to be intentional about with this book is that this book, while it deals with white privilege, it goes beyond just white privilege. Uh Privilege comes in multiple manifestations, and I think part of the reason why there has been some resistance to the conversation is that the conversations don't always acknowledge that. There are multiple manifestations of privilege, but not all privilege holds the same social currency. And so, like, when we are willing to just talk about racial privilege, but we don't want to talk about the privilege, say, connected to able-bodiedness or mental cognition or connected to gender or all of these different manifestations of privileges, then I think we're not having a full and robust conversation that's really going to allow us to live distinctively in a way that bears kingdom fruit. 
that said, the racial piece is real and we have to talk about it and we can't skirt around it. But I think, again, part of what I'm trying to do with the conversation is privilege is something that we are tempted with by Satan to try to seduce us away from our creative purpose, Mm -hmm. which is to make God's name known and God's love shown throughout the world. Privilege is something that's constantly seducing us to look inwardly and to think about ourselves as opposed to what scripture calls us to do, which is to, you know, in Philippians 2, put the interest and needs of others before ourselves to understand that we are blessed to be a blessing and that the blessings that flow to us are not just for us, but they're supposed to flow through us again to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. And so I wanted to really talk about privilege more so from a discipleship perspective to help us understand what's actually happening when we live in a world that teaches us that we only have to care about certain problems when they directly impact us. And if they don't directly impact us or the people that we see ourselves as belonging to, then we can turn a blind eye to it and live an uninterrupted life. Like that's not a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to really reframe this conversation to say, what does it look like for us to truly offer our lives in totality to Jesus and to live into our created purpose? That's across the spectrum. Like when we want to look at this in regards to white, you know, white privilege specifically, because you asked about that, what does it mean for us to truly be an interconnected body of Christ right now in the midst of so much racial trauma and violence that exists? Does it mean that as a homogeneously white congregation, we don't talk about these realities because they're not impacting us? Or do we realize that the gospel calls us to, the language we like to use in our denomination is to practice solidarity to really live into the biblical call that says that when one part of the body hurts, we're all supposed to hurt. We're all Mm -hmm. supposed to be impacted by that. And so what is our role in a homogeneously white context when we see something like the Buffalo shootings or the different school shootings that are happening that are in the various mass shootings that are racially motivated? Like Mm -hmm. we do have a role to play. And so what's the work before us, the discipleship work before us? Mm-hmm. But how do you parse that when people say that's been political? Mm. Help us with that. I mean, so there is nothing political. Uh, I mean, so let me reframe this. So for those who are ready to hear this, the language right. I would use would be that the gospel is political, but mm. it is not partisan. Come on. So <laughs> to live distinctively for the kingdom in a world that has other interests and priorities is a political act. Yes. But it is not an act that's rooted in partisan politics. Right. And so I think it's a biblical be very, very weary of partisan politics. Uh-huh. But to understand what is required of us to use the language of Micah 6, 8, these are biblical commissions to live into Isaiah 58, to be a repairer of the breach. All right. The breaches that are named are political realities that are impacting communities. Right. To be a repairer means to live in a certain orientation with certain convictions and commission from scripture. And to live into that is a political act, but it is not an act that's rooted in partisan politics. And so I would say, 
yes, to be a kingdom citizen is to be someone who is very conscious of the fact that to faithfully follow Jesus is going to call you to live in a way that you have to engage in political actions. But those political actions are rooted in our true citizenship, which is not of this world. Come on. And so that conversation is a real conversation that we have to have, but we can't have it in the terms that are oftentimes presented before us as yes. what is political. Yes. Like, let's get back to the text. And the text makes it very clear what we are supposed to be committed to and that we are supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ collaborating with God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make reconciliation a lived reality in our day and time in the midst of the brokenness that abounds. Yes. Amen. Yes. To that. This is, I feel like this is the message for the church today is that we are being so polarized and, in your language, made to live out of this partisan identity where you're either this or you're that within the system of the world, that it's hard to even start the conversation with people because they've been so shaped by an imagination that is of this world, not of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that is so true. I've heard Reverend Dominique say something else that when it comes to the understanding this whole thing of white privilege, he says that there are three responses and I wanted him to try to go down that road with me. And one was that some people just say, hey, that's political jargon and it's unbiblical. Mm-hmm. which we know that's not true. And then I've heard a reverend say that some that know that it is true, but that are afraid to, to deal with it because of the cost. I think I heard Reverend Dominique say because the cost to funds and the loss of membership. Mm-hmm. Those are real issues. And so how do you deal with organizations that you pastor, pastor, that are dealing with those two issues? Plus the third thing you said is those that, that I would put Jeff's church in that say, yes, it's real. We want to learn more about it. And then you said that once they learn about it, they get they're like, what do we do with this? We get all this new information and now we're stuck. We don't know what to do with it. Yep. Deal with those three. Yeah. The first one is denial. That mm-hmm. uh, privilege is not a real thing and that it's not a biblically based conversation. So mm-hmm. the reason why I wrote the book in the way that I did was to answer explicitly that rebuttal. Mm-hmm. This is a biblically based conversation and scripture Amen. affirms over and over and over again that privilege is a real thing that we have to reckon with as the people of God. And I like to use the language of how do we cultivate compassionate eyes to see, empathetic ears to hear, and tender hearts to respond to the mm-hmm. brokenness that abounds. And we do that through leading these conversations from a biblically based place. Like this doesn't have to be something that we conjure up and just have to create theories around, or we have to just point historically to things, we can turn to the pages of scripture and over and over and over again, they're highlighting this reality as something that the people of God must be able to discern and respond to. And so the second thing is that there are pastors who are living in fear. They are living in fear. And the most explicit way that I can say this is that we are called to pastor people into a faithful response to scripture, not to acquiesce to their disobedience. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that because so many pastors feel like their job security is on the line, 
that if they raise these conversations that they know people in their congregation don't want to hear, that their congregation will just vote them out and they won't actually be able to live into their pastoral identity anymore. And I think that there is a way that we can really be held captive to fear and that we don't truly surrender ourselves to the promptings and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to believe that the Spirit who has called us to this work will be faithful to sustain us in this work and will create a space for us to be able to speak the truth that God is placing upon our hearts. But we have to speak that truth from a biblically-based place. We have to be able to show people within the biblical text that these are not secular issues that are causing us to engage in mission drip, but these are biblical issues that the text is calling us to address over and over and over again. And then in the final one, which is people who are eager to press in, but they ultimately end up feeling a missional paralysis because of the weight of the truth being so stark and so heavy, them not really understanding what it means to really reckon with the murky history of this country. We have to understand the ways in which when we press into oppression, we're not just pressing in to finger point. We're pressing in to understand the ways in which the Spirit is inviting us to participate in being light in the darkness and, you know, mm-hmm. to point to how God has always been a way maker. And God is eager for the children of God to awaken to their responsibility to be collaborators in the inbreaking kingdom. And so for me, the conversation about privilege really is like, how do we shift this conversation from one of condemnation to an invitation to participation? Yeah. And I wanted to shift it to what does faithful participation look like in the midst of the fallen realities of a world mired in systemic sin, in a world that bluntly treats certain people differently and better than other people. So if you are one of those people who gets preferential treatment, how do you subversively use that preferential treatment to create new kingdom possibility? How do you work to create what I like to call kingdom pressure points? within Mm -hmm. systems and structures that need to topple, systems and structures that have to have renewal if there is ever going to be good news for all people and not just some. That's the kind of discipleship that we have to do. Because if we don't, then people who earnestly are trying to follow Jesus will just feel overwhelmed and as if there is nothing for them to do if they feel called to a certain kind of work. But that work means being rooted in a systems or a structure that needs reform. Like we have to think more creatively and allow the spirit to enliven our imaginations about what a faithful witness actually looks like. Because we're not just called to be faithful when we're in the congregation, but it's in all of our lives and all that we do. So how is our vocation being used to bear witness to the kingdom? And so those are the kind of conversations that I'm trying to break open in this text. And you do such a great job at it as you work through each one of those categories, the way that you unpack the... Paul and Silas narrative when they're in prison, I felt like, you know, it's obvious that you could say, well, the gospel work was there to save souls, but they were actually there to, like you said, put kingdom pressure on an unjust system. They weren't just there to deal with the soul of the centurion or the souls of their inmates. 
but with the system that got them there in the first place. So I thought that was a brilliant way that you unpacked that. The other one that for me was just really powerful was Zacchaeus and how you looked at the economic systems and how we put kingdom pressure on unjust economic systems. Could you just speak a little bit about how Zacchaeus made it in and why it was so important for you to highlight this particular story in the book? Yeah, so folks who read my first book know that I touched on Zacchaeus a little bit there. But what I did in the first book was more about the restoration of Zacchaeus to community and this belief that no person should be forever defined by the worst thing they've ever done. Mm -hmm. That there is no sin that makes us irredeemable in God's eyes. And that it ultimately, restoration of Zacchaeus individually was critical for the transformation of the community collectively. Mm. And so, like, there is this real thing we need to tend to in Zacchaeus' story in that way. But what I didn't do in rethinking incarceration that I do in Subversive is really to sit more with Zacchaeus' repentance and why his repentance needed to look the way that it does in Scripture for it to be a sincere, authentic, faithful response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for us to fully understand who Zacchaeus is, like one of the things that really troubled my soul as I continue to grow in my appreciation and knowledge of scripture is the fact of how we frequently frame Zacchaeus and present him to our people as just this wee little man who, you know, didn't have the capacity to climb up the tree and to encounter Jesus in the same way that everybody else did. He was like this disadvantaged outsider. Well, the truth is that Zacchaeus was a predator, an economic predator who was preying upon (laughs) his own people, Mm -hmm. who benefiting from an explicit system of exploitation that made him filthy rich. And his people didn't create space for him to encounter Jesus because they didn't see him as their people anymore. They saw him as an offender, as an outsider who no longer belonged to them. And there is work that we have to do when an offense occurs. And what does it mean for us to understand that the forgiveness that we've received from Christ is intended to, you know, inform our disposition towards those who offend us. So that's what we did in Rethinking. But in Subversive, I wanted to really trace the other line that's really critical in this passage with Zacchaeus is that, you know, I think what's so profound about the Zacchaeus passage that we don't like to really talk about is that Jesus doesn't say the salvation has come into this house until after Zacchaeus has actually enacted reparations. There you go. We don't like to talk about that. (laughs) <laughs> we like to skirt around that. Right. Reparations, what had to be present for Zacchaeus's repentance to be authentic. Yeah. And that's because Zacchaeus knowingly was benefiting from an oppressive system where he knew that vulnerable people were being robbed and exploited <laughs> for his own personal benefit and the benefit of the system that was in place. Yep. And so it wasn't enough for him to just say, hey, I'm sorry. Jesus, forgive me for my sins and continue to live in plush luxury and all of the benefits of the exploitation that he had reaped. Something deeper was required of Zacchaeus. And I love it because in the story, Jesus doesn't tell him that. 
Right. The key comes to that conviction on his own. The key is sits with the spirit in the presence of our Lord and Savior, and he is convicted to the point that he knows that that's the only faithful way to actually repent of his sins. And I think that's so much more beautiful than if Jesus had said, what's required of you is this. And then he just like, kind of like the rich young ruler decides like, Mm -hmm. I can do that or I can't. But it was an authentic conviction that arose from just being in the presence of God. And that's what we're really looking for. Like, what does it mean for us to live in the John the Baptist's call to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? In that way, repentance isn't this checklist thing that we do. It becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a way of constantly turning away from sin and turning back to our Lord and Savior and our created purpose, which is, mm-hmm. again, to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. And Zacchaeus does that in very tangible ways that should be instructive for us as the people of God today in the midst of a land littered with systemic sin and oppression and injustice. And what's interesting about that story, too, is that he didn't blame the system. That's what I typically do. I'm like, well, I can't do anything about it. This is the way it's set up. Somebody's going to make money doing it. Why not? You know what I mean? It was like, I feel like for persons like me, we tend to acquiesce to, well, it's just the way it is. What he did, and this is why I think it's such a brilliant story, the way you unpack it, is the first thing he did was address reparations to the system right? I'm giving away half of the money I have to the poor. So I recognize I've benefited from a system. And then he says, individually, if I have cheated an individual, they're going to get this. And so I just feel like the way you unpack that. And all the work he had to do to figure out who those individuals were, because the most beautiful thing about the story for me is that Zacchaeus says, yes, there is this ledger of people that I have personally exploited. I have been complicit in even driving exploitation in my actions with these people. But I also understand that my exploitation didn't just impact those people, but impacted entire families, communities, households. And there is this broader system, this broader web of a kind of the underworld that is now forced into these generational cycles of poverty that I am complicit with. And I am going to go and find those individuals and actually as an act of repentance, as an act of keeping with repentance to produce kingdom fruit, I'm going to also enact repair in those relationships too. Yeah. 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 Wow. Man, I'm sitting here listening. It's so much. um, I don't know what to do with all this information that just, (laughs) I mean, I hear you saying that Zacchaeus is really benefiting from the privilege. Uh, that he could have easily said, well, I didn't create this, so why do I have to fix it? Yeah, because Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. That's, right. It's a chief. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. But I wanted to say, Reverend Dominique, your exegetical and hermeneutical lens, when you look at Scripture, is very heightened. You peel back and look at Scripture a lot different than a lot of white pastors have been taught in seminary which I think it's, it's intriguing, and I think it's so critical that we do keep that biblical foundation. But how do you help white pastors see this kind of exegetical approach to scriptures when oftentimes they would have just dealt with the fact that Zacchaeus got saved? Right. How do you deal with that? How do you sensitize them to that lens that you have and that I'm developing and I think that Pastor Jeff is developing? Yeah. Yeah, so I would say when a younger me would have said, that there are just a lot of bad biblical interpretation out there. 
And mm. while that is true, I think a more faithful way to actually do what I am trying to help us to do is to realize that there's still more fruit on the vine. Come on now. There's still more truth to be unpacked. There's a lot of passages that have been underinterpreted. Hmm. And my grandmother would say there's more meat on that bone. Huh? <laughs> there's more meat on the bone. There's more fruit on the vine. There is more goodness yes. that God is trying to communicate to us in the text than what we have actually harvested. Come on. And now. so we need to go back and tend to the remaining fruit on the vine mm. so that we can help people to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just good news for some people. Mm. Yes. This is good news for all people. Yes. Now, depending on your position in the imperial structures of this world, the good news might be received as a threat to you because yeah. you have misidentified safety and security as what the principalities and the powers are trying to seduce us into believing that they are. Yes. But when we understand the kingdom truth, which is that we are blessed to be a blessing, that what the blessings that come to us are supposed to flow through us to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world, that we are inherently interconnected and that my well-being is inherently connected to your well-being and our well-being is inherently interconnected to our unhoused neighbors flourishing. Amen. This collective vision of flourishing that the gospel articulates is diametrically opposed to the way that we're taught to think about flourishing in this world. And once we can help people to understand that tension and how it exists, then I think it invites us to reread scripture in a different way. So for a perfect example, like there's some people, and this is probably most common within my faith tradition, evangelicals, who don't believe that systemic sin is a real thing. Right. If you really question that systemic sin is a real thing, I don't know what exegetical treatment you're doing of a passage like Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10. Absolutely. When we see that the entire flourishing of the Egyptian empire is rooted in the dehumanization, exploitation, and enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors. Mm-hmm. Literally everything Egypt has is predicated upon exploitation and ultimately Pharaoh's individual fears cause him to pass legislation that is rooted in that dehumanization that caused the entire nation to participate and be complicit with sin. Mm -hmm. And so they have to all participate and support a system that says that Hebrews only value lie in their ability to be economically exploited. And we see this most explicitly when Pharaoh intensifies his impression by creating the law that says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death. You see, the individual sin of Pharaoh swells because he doesn't have leaders around him who are going to hold him accountable, who are going to help make sure that his individual sin doesn't start to overflow into the systems and structures that he's tasked with stewarding. Mm. So he creates laws that say that if you actually advocate for people that I believe need to be dehumanized, you're actually going to be breaking the law at that point. And so it becomes a nation that is marred by systemic sin that flows from the individual heart of Pharaoh, but doesn't stay there. Because when powerful people don't have their sin checked and they don't have leaders around them who are going to help hold them accountable, their individual sin 
overflows into the systems and structures and governance that they're called to steward in the land. And the entire region becomes complicit with the sinful exploitation that breeds a reality like what we see in the passage. And we know that this is the same reality that haunted our nation right. for years and years. And this is the kind of thing we have to have a different way of engaging the text because scripture is not some ancient collection of biblical stories that has no relevance for our day and time. The word right. of God is a lamp unto our feet, actually helping us to understand what it means to faithfully bear witness to who and whose we are in the midst of the nuances and the complexities of our day and time. <laughs> so when we read a passage like Acts 6, 1 through 7, and it's talking to us about how the church should respond to claims of ethnic discrimination, claims that still happen in our churches today, yes. we would be wise to heed the wisdom that that text is actually trying to flesh out for us. Right. When we understand that we live in a system, mar a nation that has broken systems and structures like our criminal justice system, we should turn back to Acts 16 and look at the faithful witness of Paul and Silas. So these are stories that are trying to help us see Systemic sin is real. Systemic sin is everywhere around us. And Absolutely. we as the people of God are supposed to be compelled by Scripture and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the fact that we are ambassadors of reconciliation, mm -hmm. that we are coming to be repairers of the breach because we are participating in the breaking kingdom, making way for our Lord to return. So that's the way that I would encourage folks to really press into scripture in a new way. And if you're fascinated and intrigued by these concepts, pick up the book. I guarantee you it yes. will walk you through what it looks like to re-engage scripture in a way that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and tender hearts to respond to the reconciling work of God. Amen. Awesome. As Dominique was talking about that Exodus passage, one of the leaders around Pharaoh had them institute a law because they were afraid of what they espoused as the replacement theory. Mm. And I think that you begin to see that, as Solomon would say, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's what we're hearing today is that we have to do certain things to limit certain people's participation in democracy because they will replace us. Got that's done. good. And yeah. I, I will add also... One of the ways that we're seeing this on um, full display right now is the hearings about the Capitol invasion. And if anybody heard the testimony of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and how she was saying that there is this different set of rules that's being applied to folks who participated in the insurrection attempt and they are being held behind bars without any timeline when they're going to be able to see a judge and any time <laughs> frame and ability to connect with their family. Oh, my and God. How could this be something that America is okay with? And on, Trevor man. Noah does this great bit where he juxtaposes that against the lived experience of African-Americans. Absolutely. And says that I hope you have this same speech ready, queued up the next time we have a major case where we see how explicit and unceasing this reality has been historical. and continues to be for African-Americans in this country. Absolutely. So it's historical. It's just another prime illustration. Of hypocrisy. One of the things in that metaphor of harvesting fruit, I wonder too if for me particularly, the book is helpful because I've only 
eaten the fruit of a particular kind of harvester, mm. right? So my bookshelf is full of the same farmers yeah, and they keep farming the same grapes. And the thing that you help us do, and you do this also within the book that you bring in lots of other voices to help find fruit that maybe some eyes aren't going to see. Doesn't mean it's not good fruit. It just means it's not the whole cluster. I really, really love that illustration. But one of the things that I would say is we diversify by diversifying the voices that we listen to. And that's why this book is a must read. It's a must read because it's a different way of approaching text. And it's a, a faithful way of bearing witness to the truth of the scriptures as revealed to us through the life of Jesus. So thank you for taking the time, for doing the work where can we follow you on social media? I have a link tree and you can find me at DD Gilliard. That will give you the most comprehensive links to all of what I'm up to in the world. You can find me on my Facebook page. I have a Facebook author page, Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. And then you can follow me on IG at Dominique D as in Du Bois Gilliard. So Dominique D Gilliard. And then on Twitter, I'm DD Gilliard. Great. And you're active. You're very active on Twitter. I appreciate the way that you thoughtfully engage there. That's my only place where I follow you, but I really appreciate the way that you engage and continue to point to the truth and you do it in a compassionate and humble way. Dominique, it has just been so good to have you on the show today. I feel like we could talk another hour, but we thank you for the time that you were able to give us. And we look forward to all of our listeners picking up Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call, to leverage privilege as well as your former book titled Rethinking Incarceration. And one thing I also send you show notes for, both books have accompanying video curriculum for small groups to go through and community. I want this work to be communal work because this isn't work that we can do on our own. Yep, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, let me just also thank you. We weren't sure we'd get a chance to get an audience with you and we praying that God's protection over you because you are a vessel that the enemy do not want to continue to go forward. And so right. we're going to be praying for your ministry and the work you're doing among evangelicals, because when you can equip white pastors to help equip other white pastors, that's how we're going to turn this thing and move the church in the right direction. And I am so blessed to be in the midst of young men like yourself. So thank you so much for taking time. I appreciate that. And I'll just lastly say, while Subversive is a book that, you know, I believe that white Christians can definitely glean from. I wanted to be very intentional about writing this book, not just for white people. Right. This is a book that I believe has application for every follower of Jesus yes. that exists. I think I really wanted to be intentional about speaking to my brothers in Christ, yeah. who oftentimes are unwilling to examine their own male privilege and the ways that it functions in the world and the pulpit and in our relationship mm. to systems and structures as well as our systems. That's another subject matter because you wrote a lot about women in your book and I, we right. didn't get to get there, but Esther and... Yep. And Sarah's daughter. Yeah, right. and so we didn't get to talk Midwives about that. Yes. Yeah, so it's really critical. I think the thing that gives our witness integrity is our willingness to do self-examination and to be confessional about the ways that we too are complicit in the things that we're trying to deconstruct in the world. I think if we're just standing on a hill, just pointing fingers at other people, I think that witness lacks credibility. 
So mm-hmm. I want us all to be humble and sober enough to look at the ways in which the spirit is trying to do some refining work in our lives around this conversation Absolutely. and not just point fingers at others. Hey, thank you, Sue, for inspiring a sermon in me around Moses. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> Moses could have stayed in his privilege and enjoyed the kingdom. Yep. But at some point, he had to take a risk and to try to protect his brother. And I want, I got a sermon on that that you were talking about in that text. So much. I got so many scriptures out of what you're doing so, <laughs> in sermons. So I'll send you an offering, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, Reverend Gillier, thank you again for joining us. We really yes. appreciate the time. And thank you to all of our listeners who have tuned in for another episode of the Shades of Hope podcast. Please share this with the folks that you know. Like us and rate us wherever you get these podcasts. And we will see you next time for another fantastic conversation on Shades of Hope. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. That's shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children.